0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Human trafficking, when a person is exploited for sex or forced into labor, is a global problem from Connecticut to Bangkok. How many people does this affect? 46 million, according to the Global Slavery Index. Today, Where We Live, we follow up from an earlier show we aired about human trafficking. Why does the problem persist? Because someone along the supply chain is making money. How much? According to the U.N., an estimated $150 billion, rather, in profits. We'll hear from advocates for survivors, as well as experts on ways the public and private sector can work together to combat trafficking on a global scale. Have you thought about whether what you buy or consume could be helping traffickers? If so, what changes would you support? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. As always, you can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Later in the hour, we'll turn back to Connecticut and its ongoing budget problems, specifically how the state is privatizing services for the developmentally disabled to save millions. But first, I want to welcome back to our studio, Krishna Patel. Thank you so much for having me. Krishna is General Counsel and Justice Initiative Director at Grace Farms Foundation. That's in New Canaan, Connecticut. She's also a former federal prosecutor who's worked on trafficking cases. Uh, Remind us again, Krishna, when we talk about human trafficking, especially
2: in in areas of conflict, what are we talking about? We're talking about individuals who are essentially being compelled uh, to engage in some type of work. Whether uh, in the sex trafficking or in the labor trafficking industry, I think when you distill it to its most essential components, it's compelled work. Uh, It is under some kind of fraud, force, or coercion, uh, and it's clearly against their will. It is, in the truest sense, a modern-day form of slavery. I've seen an estimate of 46 million people that are in this modern-day slavery. That is correct, and I think uh, if you were to do the math, you're talking about one person essentially out of every 162 people on the planet.
0: What's the percentage of, of these uh, these survivors and victims who are trafficked uh, in the, the sex trade? Because that's often the one that gets the most attention.
2: And I think you know the percentages are different uh, in different parts of the globe. Uh, certainly, we see a, a gender component with the sex trade. We see far more women and children. And where here in the US, the numbers seem to be much higher in the sex trafficking industry, on a worldwide basis, forced labor tends to be the the higher number. Joining us now
0: is Dr. James Cocaine, head of the United Nations University Office in New York. He's also lead author of the report, Fighting Human Trafficking and Conflict, 10 Ideas for Action by the United Nations Security Council. He joins us from NPR studios in Midtown Manhattan. Welcome to where we live.
1: Great to be with you, Lucy.
0: So, tell us how this conversation uh, ended up at at Grace Farms in New Canaan, Connecticut, and the work of this workshop that helped uh, influence this report.
1: Well, the United Nations has been uh, taking steps to address human trafficking for a long time, for at least the last 15 or 20 years. But in the last year or so, there's been a huge uptick of interest in New York in particular as there's been growing awareness of the links between human trafficking and modern slavery and conflict, uh, and also the links to larger development questions. Last December, a very brave young Yazidi survivor of uh, Islamic State sex enslavement, Nadia Murad Basitaha, addressed the United Nations Security Council. And as as a result, the Security Council asked the UN Secretary General to write a report, which we're expecting to see any time in the next couple of months. The nature of those reports is that they're often quite stale stock-taking exercises. So as a result, several uh, countries came to us at the UN University, a think tank, and asked us to hold a workshop to bring together about 100 people from all over the world the best and brightest minds to think about some innovative and creative ways that the Security Council might begin to tackle this problem. And we immediately thought of Krishna and Grace Farms. Uh, Krishna's dedication to this issue is very well known. And the work of Grace Farms and the space they have there were uniquely suited to this kind of gathering. So in late June and early July, we brought that 110 uh, people together for this discussion and the result was the report that you've just mentioned. Let's
0: talk more about the people who become exploited. Um, obviously, the world's attention in the last couple of years is on the, what is it, 65 million people that have been displaced uh, uh, due to conflicts, including what's happening in Syria um, with ISIS. You mentioned the Yazidi people that are being victimized, uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria. Um, can you t- explain to people, uh, again, how they are these individuals are being trafficked by terrorist organizations such as these?
1: Sure, this is a very complex phenomenon, but when you break it down, there are really essentially three different ways that human trafficking uh, connects to conflict. One is that, in some cases, groups traffic actually traffic people into conflict to use them under fraud or coercion, as Krishna said, as uh, part of their own uh, setup and um, We see this, for example, with the recruitment of young people from all over the world into conflict zones in the Middle East. A second possibility is that uh, they are trafficking people in the conflict context or out of the conflict context. And that's the point that Krishna made earlier about the involvement of people in essentially forced labor of one kind or another. So we have people who've been displaced by conflict being involved in the conflict zone as lookouts or porters or forced domestic servants or, unfortunately, uh, forced sex slaves in in some circumstances. But we also see people being trafficked from the conflict zone uh, into exploitation in a far-off country. So, for example, those 65.3 million people that you mentioned that have been displaced by conflict, as they flee conflict zones, are deeply, deeply vulnerable to that kind of trafficking and exploitation. And then the third kind, unfortunately, is children being recruited uh, into, into these armed groups.
0: So walk us through that. Again, um, much attention on, on the refugees or the migrants that are trying to get to Europe. When they're getting to that port and they're trying to get on a ship uh, fleeing uh, their homeland from persecution, that is where the traffickers are waiting for them as well?
1: It may not just be in the port. It's actually all along the chain. So at the workshop, we discussed the situation, for example, in Libya, where you have people fleeing overland uh, from conflicts in West Africa and the Sahel, Uh, even from East Africa. They come all the way across to Libya. Libya is at present uh, still being affected by conflict. There are militias that control different parts of the Libyan territory. And the people who are trying to move through that territory to get to the port in order to get onto a boat and then move into Europe are deeply vulnerable to being forced to do all sorts of terrible things in order to barter for that movement or simply are simply uh, detained and imprisoned, kidnapped, essentially. Even if they then do get to the port and get on a boat, when they get to the other end, there's growing evidence that, for example, in Italy, uh, mafia groups control the detention centres – where those people are received and housed by the state. Uh, So all along the chain, these people who have fled and have lost everything that they've worked for in their lives have very, very little bargaining power with the people they're entrusting their lives and their children's lives to uh, if they want to find safety and a better life. And that makes them extremely vulnerable to this kind of exploitation.
2: Krishna? So, I think, you know, for many of the listeners, to bring it home uh, to our shores, uh, this commonly, we see a very common phenomenon uh, very similar to this happening uh, on our southwest border. People leaving, right, Central and South America for all different reasons, Uh, sometimes uh, because of very, very difficult political uh, uh, issues or environmental issues. And most of them come through uh, the Mexico U.S. border at one of those entry points. And through any, time in that process. They're very susceptible to traffickers. And most traffickers are smart enough to actually engage in some type of fraud or deception to get them through into the border and they don't really realize they're in a terribly terrible trafficking situation until they've already crossed the border. And some, you know, along the way, refugees, uh, either those fleeing from Syria or the immigrants who are trying to come for a better life into the U.S., uh, you know, They can be subject to all sorts of different crimes, uh, but traffickers are definitely aware that they're there and understand uh, how profitable individuals, and particularly children, can be. This
0: is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalba In studio with me is Krishna Patel, General Counsel and Justice Initiative Director at Grace Farms Foundation. That's in New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, Work was done there earlier this summer uh, on a report to... um, provide more information to the UN Security Council also on the joining us from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan our dr. James cocaine head of the United Nations University office in New York lead author of our new report fighting human trafficking and conflict ten ideas for action by the United Nations Security Council if you have a question or a comment eight six zero two seven five seven two six six again that number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six I want to turn back to you James can we talk about you know what have been the traditional tools um, that that uh, governments um, NGOs have been able to use uh, to find traffickers and to prevent this problem from growing and why have they not been effective
1: The traditional tools have been essentially law enforcement tools criminal justice tools so criminal investigation uh, arresting people following the money prosecution that kind of thing. And that, that's an absolutely essential suite of tools. There's no question that we won't ever really get a handle on this complex problem if we don't figure out ways to better use those tools. But it's inherently challenging to use those tools because these people are hidden, they are being trafficked internationally and criminal justice tends to stop at the water's edge and because they're up against uh, essentially an adversary uh, professional criminal networks that make it their business to, uh, to avoid uh, detection and certainly disruption by criminal justice actors. So while these tools are definitely necessary, it's also increasingly apparent that they're not sufficient, particularly when we're talking about uh, conflict situations. In those situations, by definition, uh, law enforcement is weak and law and order have broken down. And so what we've been doing in this work with Grace Farms is trying to think about what other kinds of tools might be available beyond law enforcement uh, to help get a handle on this problem and begin to squeeze it from the outside in.
0: We're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of those uh, new tools coming up after the break. But before we get there, again, I keep mentioning this report, James. Can you talk about some of these uh, ideas for action that you've come up with?
1: Sure. So we brought together 110 experts from all over the world, from uh, different countries, from law enforcement, from the financial sector, the tech sector, media, uh, of course, civil society and, and people who've been affected by this themselves. And what they came up with really was four different approaches that the Security Council could take. The first is simply to denounce uh, this activity and hold the people who are engaged in it accountable. Uh, there's a very, very strong norm in international law against this kind of thing human trafficking and modern slavery. But as you yourself said, Lucy, 45.8 million people doesn't sound like a norm being very well enforced globally. So there's a need to reinforce this norm and to make clear that even if uh, armed groups like Islamic State or in Africa, Boko Haram, are claiming that slavery is justified. That's just simply not the case. Slavery is, under international law, never justified anywhere at any time for any reason. Um, So denunciation is the first thing the Security Council could do. The second thing it could do is uh, what we describe as disruption. And that involves monitoring, tracking, uh, looking at where the money from these groups go, uh, and using the tools available to the council, such as sanctions regimes, to begin to tackle the problem. The third area, and very important, is what's described in the UN as protection. That means getting out there in the field and finding people who are vulnerable along irregular migration routes, such as Krishna described, and making sure they have the information they need to protect themselves against this kind of exploitation. Uh, There's a lot of creative ways we can do that now, for example, through smartphones, finding people who look like, because of their metadata patterns, They may be uh, on the move in an irregular way. They may be uh, trying to cross a border. They may be vulnerable to exploitation. We can get that information in front of them, but we haven't really been trying that so far. And finally, the council should simply keep this on its agenda. There's a lot that the council could do uh, if it had a framework for action over the longer term.
0: I'm speaking about human trafficking here on WMPR's Where We Live Today. Uh, Dr. James Cocaine, head of the United Nations University Office in New York. Also, Krishna Patel, general counsel and justice initiative director at Grace Farms Foundation. When we come back from the break, they're going to stick around, and we're going to hear about how the private and tech sectors, among others, can help reduce this global problem. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nalbeth Human trafficking is an ancient problem, but how has technology aided traffickers, especially in conflict zones? And how can technology be used to crack down on trafficking around the world? Today, Where We Live, we're exploring a recent report by the United Nations think tank and its recommendations to the U.N. Security Council. In studio with me, Krishna Patel, General Counsel and Justice Initiative Director at Grace Farms Foundation in New Canaan. She's also a former federal prosecutor who worked on trafficking cases. Also joining us from NPR studios in Midtown Manhattan, Dr. James Cocaine, head of the U.N. University office in New York, lead author of the report, Fighting Human Trafficking and Conflict, 10 Ideas for Action by the United Nations Security Council. Uh, Krishna, I wanted to uh, go back to you and just ask, you know, why should people in
2: Connecticut care about this? Because modern day slavery is happening everywhere in the world. Uh, no no place is immune. Uh, we have slavery statistics uh, human trafficking statistics in all 50 of our states. And, you know, as James said, something that really came home to me is um, through the work of James and, and the other folks at the UN is understanding that slavery, um, being anti-slavery, is really one of the strongest legal norms in international law. And it is, a, it is the most brutal and the most horrific of crimes. What we are now holding are two contradictory truths. The idea that... Uh, We have such a strong legal norm against slavery and the fact that the possibility is one in every 162 people in our world may be enslaved, including here in the United States, including here in Connecticut. And so every single citizen, I think, has a moral obligation uh, to not only be aware, but to engage in whatever capacity he or she can uh, to continue to support a norm against slavery
0: we were talking before the show a recent investigation by the associated press to give us an idea of how trafficking is happening all around us even in this country uh, hundreds of undocumented men from southeast asia are employed in hawaii due to a federal loophole that allows them to work but exempts them from most basic labor protections they can be they can earn as little as 70 cents an hour and under this law, the U.S. citizens make up 75 percent of these fishing crews on these commercial fishing vessels, but the other quarter uh, percent, uh, because of uh, you know legislation and passed and promoted by the late Hawaii Senator Daniel Inua, he pushed for a loophole to support the biggest industry in Hawaii, so it exempts commercial fishing boat owners from federal rules enforced almost everywhere else. So in this situation, you have these undocumented men that um, get paid little. To, for the work that they're doing, and they can't
2: even leave the boats. Correct. And, you know, besides just inhuman labor conditions, and I think, you know, Martha Mendoza's work has gone so far, The all of the work by the Associated Press on the Thai fishing industry, uh, the Indonesian uh, fishermen, and it's really brought it home to our own shores uh, here in the U.S., And, you know, the fish that you are seeing showing up in your stores, I think the article talks about, you know, places like Walmart, places like Costco. Whole Foods. Whole Foods. And, you know, the fish that you are buying uh, could have been uh, because of, you know, someone who was enslaved. And so I think we have such an incredible obligation as citizens to uh really start looking and thinking about the purchases that we 're making and our purchasing power and our own ability, we sometimes feel these these problems are so big, so complex, uh, so overwhelming. but this is a place where you can ask questions, you can become informed enough that your own purchasing power as a consumer can make such an extraordinary difference uh, in the in the lives of people, and you know it reinforces that this is not while well, this is happening in Indonesia and in India and in Thailand, uh, that, you know, what we are doing here is is a cause of it.
0: Have you thought about whether what you buy or consume could be helping traffickers? If so, what changes would you support? You can join the conversation 860 um, 275 James Cocaine, I wanted to go back to you. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the UN um, specifically is looking at this problem um, late last year after hearing from a Yazidi uh, woman. Um, and I'm curious if, you know, Obviously, the UN's paying attention, but what about just regular consumers? Do you see a shift happening?
1: I do think we see a shift happening, but we need governments and business to work together to make this easier for consumers. If you go into a, a, a store, let's take Whole Foods because you mentioned it, Lucy. You know there is a very simple rating system when you get to that uh, meat fridge about just how sustainable. The meat was in the way it was produced, but then if you go to another part of the store and try to identify which of those products have been produced with, say, child labour, it's extremely opaque. It's very, very tough for a consumer to know uh, which products, goods, and services they're consuming may be at risk of generating, uh, of of unwittingly supporting human trafficking, human trafficking in conflict, or otherwise. So there's clearly a need for us to work together, for business to take leadership, but to get the support they need from regulators to make this uh, something that's worth their while to do. Otherwise, it's going to be extremely hard for consumers to exercise that kind of leverage. And the other thing I would say here is that we have to make sure that we're not simply uh, naming and shaming. Naming and shaming is very important, but if the knee-jerk response when Uh, human trafficking is found in a supply chain is simply to drop that producer, it can have all sorts of unintended negative consequences for the people who are actually working for that company in the first place. So we need a multi-stakeholder approach that develops a sophisticated response to ensure that those victims are actually uh, not left worse off than they might otherwise be.
0: I wanted to bring into the conversation now Duncan Jepson, founder and director of the Asia-based nonprofit organization, Liberty Asia. Duncan, welcome to where we live.
3: Hi. Nice to meet you. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: So tell us about your nonprofit. Um, When we talk about this global problem, obviously data matters. So how is Liberty Asia helping collect that data and sharing it with the appropriate people?
3: Um, I mean, we try to look at the problem from... Could we have a systemic impact? And you know, my 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 background is in um, part of it, certainly within within um, running uh, compliance and, and and legal teams and financial services companies across Asia Pacific. And one of the things that always uh, I remember back in 2004, we get a letter from the U.S. State Department listing names, uh, various variants of the names of Bin Laden. And, and we were obviously uh, required to check whether we had accounts, and like everybody else, and we did so. Um, but what amazed me is that we were never asked to check in anybody else, by anybody, and, and um, that's not the responsibility of, of, of uh, certain agencies to produce names, but civil society could produce some names for, uh, for banks and services to check and so forth. So it, it never really happened, and there seemed to be um, just a need to use um information uh, you know intelligence and data um i would say more wisely but but where it simply hadn't been hadn't been used before and and what we had started to do was look to see where that could be gathered where it was available and how it could be to be analyzed in order to be made available to others um that could make use of it and essentially make better better business, better business decisions you know um whether it was who to do business with or or just how to do business and so you know, that's, I suppose, the fundamentals of, of what a, a strong part of Liberty Age is about is gathering information and then, you know, providing it to people who can use it to make better decisions um, in favor of better business, better employment. Um, and part of that, obviously, is, is in both the prevention of and uh, the of of slavery, exploitation, and human trafficking.
0: Have you been doing this for some time, or is this relatively new?
3: Um, so we've been doing it for about three years now in this form. Um, we have a sort of a, I guess, uh, technology um, industry sort of fast fail approach, which is, you know, keep trying things, um, talking to people, learning from them, seeing where, how to gather information, how to store it, how to, to better analyze it, and then how to how to communicate it along. And we've, um, you know, we've had some good successes recently, and then we've also had some. Uh, some fails where we thought, well, that isn't going to work. Uh, that might be because of a risk of a uh, legal issue, or it might be because the the recipient doesn't doesn't necessarily want the information. Um, so it's been about three years of that, and then I think that the people that we have have been doing this kind of uh, work uh, for, like myself, for ten, fifteen years.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpa Today, we're talking about human trafficking. I want to turn back to Krishna Patel. Uh, you were a former federal prosecutor, so something that Duncan was mentioning, you know, there's been data sharing, especially after 9-11 uh, between law enforcement, financial regulators, private sector in terms of where the terrorists are, how they're financing, uh, what they're doing, but not necessarily the fact that, you know, this is coming from trafficking of people. Can you talk about that? Sure.
2: I think, you know, certainly after 9-11, we we being the U.S. federal government uh, put a tremendous amount of time, resources, and effort uh, not only to collaborate better within our internal agencies, whether it be our intelligence and our domestic law enforcement agencies, uh, but spent an enormous effort on uh, collecting, reviewing, and analyzing data to counter terrorists around the world um, in, in the most classic sense and you know i will tell you uh terrorism because your job is to prevent a crime uh people don't get to hear when you're successful uh they only get to hear when you're unsuccessful and the i will t- you know i really do believe this is where the us government has done it um th- quite well we you know while we have a long way to go we have done amazing work in or or had in my prior work i had seen just tremendous work done and data collection storage was a very, very important part of it. There are important conversations happening. For example, the, the, the civil society, the the civil rights, private sector side of it, and data. And those continue to need to happen. But the data was in, incredibly effective uh, to counter And I think we're seeing some of that play out where our friends in Europe have perhaps not focused as much on data and its capabilities. And what has really, truly been inspiring for me on that front is the artificial intelligence component of data. Uh, however, having said that, as much as trafficking is so tied into uh, terrorism in certain aspects, certainly uh, the the work that James and the UNU has focused in on, uh, we have not done that same type of work with human trafficking. And we really need to, because for all of the reasons that terrorism is so hard, it is uh, international, it's jurisdiction, uh, cross-jurisdictional, it is very clandestine, it's very decentralized. Uh, that's trafficking as well. They're very hard cases to prosecute in the traditional sense. And so, you know, uh, the data, I think, is, a, is an exceptionally critically important point to disrupt and counter uh, anti-trafficking in the world.
0: So let's talk specifically about one example. Um, you know, having spoken to you in the past, uh, the plight of the Yazidi people and what ISIS is doing to the women and children. Can you um, talk to our listeners about that and how uh, governments could go after how ISIS is financing their organization through trafficking?
2: So um, you know, ISIS and and ISIL, you know, and their various names, um, uh, specifically with the Yazidis, I think shows you possibly all of the worst horrors of, of trafficking. Um, ISIL has decided that slavery is okay. Um, They are actively and intentionally and willfully uh, abducting and enslaving uh, women, girls, and men, uh, the girls and women, into rape camps. And and the stories are are beyond horrifying. They are inhuman. Uh, And there's two aspects of it. It is a psychological weapon of war, destruction of the enemy, Uh, But they are also now, because of the ransoms, being able to finance their operations through trafficking, just purely alone. Uh, They're buying and selling women. And so you're seeing both the financing component as well as the psychological weapon of war component. And when you're looking at ISIS, um, how it may be able to fund itself in other ways, uh, how it's able to get arms and get money, Uh, I think that it's very critical at some point either the illicit money has to go into a legitimate financial system or money from a legitimate financial system has to go to buy illicit products. And those are two points where – the world and the financial industry and the banking industry and the collaboration between the private and the public become so critical to create disruptive um, mechanisms so in the same way for example as duncan just pointed out you know when the us government wanted information on osama bin laden there you know there was nothing everything was on the table including asking every single financial institution to look at every version of every name and family member and associate through the through the banking system and any corporate entity we can do the same thing with traffickers. I'll turn back to Duncan Jepson again. Uh, his nonprofit, Liberty Asia.
0: Um, tell me again about some of that work um, that you know you're helping uh, with collect, and how it's getting shared. You know, to combat can it combat something as as big as ISIS?
3: Well, I mean, I think you know the, the question is, is, where does the where does the actual exploitation occur, and where does the money that the that comes from that exploitation um, arise. And then, of course, it may get channeled back to a variety of destinations, and, and ISIL being one of them, um, Boko Haram and so forth. And I think the question is, where are the opportunities to make money from exploitation and where can you make the most money? And you know, as Krishna was saying, that obviously the, the place where it occurs most is where you create something that you can lock in your profits um, into a legitimate market obviously hard to lock in a profit in an, illegit- an unlawful criminal market because you don't know what's going to occur. But you can do that with the fishing industry. You can do that with mining extraction and so forth. You, at some point, you're going to get an unlawful deal, and, and that obviously at that point is money laundering. And that's when that's when it starts to get interesting because there's a, that space allows you to identify the activities on the ground, people speaking to victims, understanding what has happened to the victims, and there is information you know, that the victims have that, you know, anonymously obviously can be used to to understand okay if this is a geography a particular place as, as james was saying earlier where law rule of law has broken down where corruption is high the geography is controllable money can be accessed both can be moved out and moved in you know that once you have that environment then you have an opportunity to do all sorts of things and one of those things is going to be um to to exploit to exploit other people um for gain and you know, then it becomes an issue for those who work in various uh, areas to see, Well, okay, where's that money going? And is it going to terrorists? Is it just going to uh, you know transnational organised crime? Is it going back into the hands of government uh, agencies and um, and politicians? And so there's there's questions to be um, to be asked at all those points. And that's where we need much more data and much more information. And uh, you know, there are people that do have it. It's that they don't necessarily. Um, realize they have it or realize that it's useful to share it
0: turn back to dr james cocaine again head of the un university office in new york lead author of this report fighting human trafficking and conflict 10 ideas for action by the united nations security council Uh, with this new report how does it build on the work that liberty asia is doing Uh, james
1: well the key question here for the security council is is business as usual good enough or do they need to give a nudge a big signal to states and to the private sector that they want to see a paradigm shift that they want to see the kind of shoulder being put to the wheel that krishna described happening after 911 around terrorism in this country and and to some extent abroad if we got that signal from the security council in one form or another it would have a trickle down effect through the way that states look at the problem and deal with it through the way that the un's own sanctions committees deal with it And that sends signals to the private sector to put resources and thought and time and money into finding solutions here. And that's when you're going to start to see the solutions unlocked. And this requires the Security Council to move outside of its comfort zone. For example, the Security Council doesn't really talk much to the the tech industry. But we know now that, for example, Islamic State is using apps like WhatsApp, uh, Threema, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, to bring to, to recruit and traffic women and children and then to auction them off. Those companies have a responsibility to respect human rights. They have data available, but they're not getting the signals from their own regulators or from the international community that they need to share that data in a safe, privacy-respecting way, but a way that will allow people like uh, Duncan to take the data and turn it into a meaningful outcome.
0: And so you have this report. What is next?
1: Well, next, uh, as you know, the UN is a place where we do a lot of talking. (laughs) Uh, We need a place like that in the world. As Winston Churchill said, better to jaw-jaw than to (laughs) war-war. It's a place we can resolve differences. So there'll be a lot of discussion of this report. And there'll also be a separate report from the Secretary General on what, uh, what can be done in this area. We hope that our report will inform that Secretary General's report. And then we can anticipate the Security Council sitting down in December and deciding how to move forward from here.
0: You mentioned a survivor of trafficking, Nadia Murad Basitaha. Uh, Next Friday, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime and the permanent mission of the U.S. to the UN are going to have a ceremony for the appointment of a goodwill ambassador for the dignity of survivors of human trafficking. We have a, a sound clip from her presentation to the UN last year. Let's hear that.
4: Before the 3rd of August 2014, I was living with my family in Kuju village with my mother, my brothers and sisters in our pretty little quiet village. But then the Islamic State attacked our region. We found ourselves faced with a true genocide. A large number of these forces of evil had come from different states with weapons and equipment and uniforms. Their aim was to eliminate all Yazidis under the pretext that according to them, we were infidels. The Islamic State did not just come to kill our women and girls, but they took us as war booty, as uh, merchandise to be exchanged. These crimes were not committed in an arbitrary fashion. It was an organized uh, planned policy. The Islamic state came with one sole aim to destroy the Yazidi identity through force, rape, the recruitment of children, and the destruction of all of our temples
0: that 's Nadia speaking through an interpreter i 'll turn back to you, Krishna Patel. When you hear that kind of testimony about what is happening, uh, you know is this the kind of, of um, testimony that will get people into action. Obviously, the U.N.
2: is more interested, but what more can be done? I think everybody needs to hear her story, um, and I think everybody needs to listen to stories like hers. Um, there's five to 6,000 Yazidi women and girls currently enslaved in rape camps. It is an all-out misogynistic war on women and girls. It is a um, genocide. It is why the U.N. had been created in the first place, to ensure the peace and security against the genocide against the Holocaust of an entire group of people. And I think all of us need to wake up to it, and all of us need to learn about it, and all of us need to do something about it.
0: Speaking of which, we heard uh, from a listener, Billy from Middletown. He wanted to know you know, how he and others could help. Are there volunteer organizations where he could get involved?
2: Uh, there are. Um, uh, James uh, actually had invited the leading uh, organization uh, from northern Iraq. Um, And Yazda and others are very involved in supporting the Yazidi women and girls. Uh, I know that it's not intentional on any of our parts, but we're talking about the children of Boko Haram. We're talking about the Lord's Resistance Army, you know, um, uh, individuals in Somalia and Sudan who are undergoing this. And so there's various groups in each of those regions, I think, from um, actively supporting them through whether it's volunteer efforts or donations. I think one of the most important things we need to do as a society in this country is be proud of the fact that we live in a democracy and the State Department is a permanent member, uh, sorry, the United States is a permanent member on the Security Council, it's to advocate to the White House uh, to, and the State Department to say that this is something that we need to start taking very seriously. Trafficking as a policy or counter, anti-trafficking, even though it's happening in all 50 states, uh, even in this presidential election, is not something that we are seeing consistently as a top policy issue, and it needs to be. Thank you, Krishna Patel,
0: General Counsel and Justice Initiative Director at Grace Farms Foundation in New Canaan. Also, Dr. James Cocaine, he joined us from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan, head of the U.N. University office in New York. Thank you for your time. You. And Duncan, Duncan Jepson, founder and director of the Asia-based nonprofit organization Liberty Asia. Continue this conversation on our website, WNPR.org slash where we live. And then when we return, we're going to talk more about the budget uh, situation here in Connecticut. This is where we live. Thank mm-hmm. you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Coming up Thursday, illicit use of prescription drugs has almost tripled among high school students in southeastern Connecticut. That's according to the Southeastern Regional Action Council. On the next Where We Live, we'll explore what schools and communities are doing to combat drug abuse among youth in our state. We'll speak with educators, parents, municipal leaders, and a mental health professionals. And we want to hear from you, too. That's Thursday. Today we're shifting back to Connecticut right now and to our state's budget problems. One way Connecticut is saving money is to privatize group homes for people with developmental disabilities. Parents of these adult children are protesting the move. One of them joins us now in studio. Lindsay Matthews is a parent and legal guardian of an adult with developmental disabilities. Lindsay, welcome to where we live. Thank you very much,
5: Lucy. It's great to be here. Tell us about your son. Oh, my son. His name is George. Um, He's 51 years old. He can't talk. He can't make decisions about what he wants to eat. He can't button a shirt. He can't put on his shoes. He can't drive. Um, But he can love and um, express himself. Um, You know, even if you're able to make a sound, that's not speech. And so for him, not being able to talk means that he doesn't have the power of the word to direct his life, to say what he wants, to say what his life will be.
0: So he's 51. You've needed help uh, throughout the years as
5: you've raised him. Where is he living now? Uh, He's a resident at Brook Street Group Home in Hamden. Um, There are four other housemates. He's been there for quite some time, almost 20 years. And uh, this is his home away from home, of course, um, and it's my home because he's there and because the people who take ca- such good care of him are my family.
0: So I'm reading he has cerebral palsy and has uh, profound intellectual impairments. If you didn't have this group home to help your son, I mean, what what would be the alternative?
5: Well, you know, the way I look at it is uh, to have George receive the services of DDS, is it's not voluntary. I've had people say to me, well, if you don't like the services or what's happening in DDS, then just take them out. DDS services are voluntary to people who are in the 1% because they can afford any th- kinds of services that their handicapped or dis- disabled, um, disadvantaged child can needs. But for the rest of us, we need DDS as a core service for the state of Connecticut. To me, DDS, the Department of Developmental Services, is part of the commons in the same way that Social Security is part of the commons, that unemployment is part of the commons, that our public roads are part of the commons. They're there for everyone who need them. And right now, we have some serious problems in Connecticut making sure that that happens.
0: I wanted to bring into the conversation on the phone with us Michelle Sorensen. She works at the group home uh, where George is, a uh, Brook Street group home in Hamden. Michelle, welcome to where we live. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. So tell us about um, your relationship with George and, and the other adults that you're helping there.
6: Um, I love my job. It's not a job. They are um, – I actually look forward to going there. I, I love their smiles. Uh, I enjoy what I do. Um, it's we're just very close. We're very close knit. It, it's uh, as Lindsay said, we're a family. We know the little quirks that everybody has. We like to tease each other, but when it comes down to it, Brook Street is a group home with 24 hours, um, seven days a week medical care. The individuals that I serve are nonverbal. Um, some are wheelchair bed bound, and it, it's a total care facility. And they depend on us, the staff, for all their needs. Um, things that we take for granted, like Lindsay had said, you know, making breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, you know, if they're sick. Lindsay had said making a noise. Well, different individuals, the way they look, a switch in their eye, a, a cough or clearing of the throat, that lets us know that there's something wrong with them. That lets me know that there's an individual who's in crisis. And that needs medical attention right away. You've so, worked um,
0: at you've worked at Brook Street Group Home
6: for how long? Um, six years. I've been with the state of Connecticut mm-hmm. for just over eighteen years with so, the Department of Disability Services.
0: Okay, so you are an employee of the state. So with this privatization, what does that mean for your job?
6: That I, I'll eventually lose my job, and when I lose it, um, then I'll just be. On the unemployment line getting you know state funding um, as far as you know Medicare or not Medicare excuse me as far as medical um, needs maybe the Husky uh, situation because there's you know there's nothing more that um, that is out there for me once my I lose my job but it really isn't about me losing my job um, if I may it's about what's going to happen to the individuals that I serve that's what's more bothersome to me to be honest with you Um, I you know the continuity of care is on my mind how um, how are they going to know these individuals the private group homes that private sector has a hundred percent turnover rate so how is the continuity of care going to be established where is the trust that's going to be formed where is the love where is that family aspect that Brook Street has been known for um that's what's bothersome to me when we talk about privatization of our group home or any of the other group homes that they're trying, that the governor thinks we should close.
0: Uh, Lindsay Matthews, again, is in studio with us. She's a parent and legal guardian of an adult with developmental disabilities named George. You filed a lawsuit against the state. Tell us about that, Lindsay.
5: Yes. Um, I think you asked me earlier what what made me do it. Um, and I have to say in one word, anger. And there's probably a more sophisticated word which is righteous indignation, um, and the lawsuit was filed um, in two, uh, last week, and it's there are two main issues. One is to stop the pri- privatized care uh, for my son George, which I have objected to, and the second part is my right to privacy under HIPAA uh, law that protects George's medical records from being shared with shoppers who would like to have a contract with Brook Street group Home I just wanted to get back to that and say that um, Brook Street uh, was very uh, attractive to what I call shoppers um, nonprofit organizations which by the way are non not totally nonprofit they are also ours in the sense that our tax dollars go to fund them so um, the 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 most one of the most egregious things that I can think of right now is the the lack of respect for my wishes and that George not be in a private situation. But on a grander scale, this is this fight is about all Connecticut parents and guardians of handicapped adults and children who need services. It's not just about George. It's not about me. It's going to set the tone for what happens here on out in Connecticut in g- regard to privatization and uh, in other states as well.
0: I wanted to read to you a statement uh, from the governor's office, uh, spokesman Chris McClure. Uh, he wrote, uh, 90% of those living in community service arrangements are receiving services and facilities operated by nonprofits and community providers. Uh, the privatization plan, uh, this step, will save taxpayer dollars without affecting service levels. What's your reaction to that, Lindsay?
5: Um, my reaction to that is my son has a certain amount of dollars coming into the group home. And dd because he's handicapped, he's not at a resort or a club med. He's he gets this money as a benefit to 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 mitigate the problems that he's he's facing as a handicapped individual. And to say that um, that this is you know a move that's similar or equal to um, what he's receiving now is ludicrous. The money that he's being, quote, sold for to the private enterprises, nonprofits, is being almost halved. And you can hear them saying, you know, um, DDS saying that this is going to cost a lot less. Well, maybe, maybe, because um, our idea is to keep the workers who are in the group homes now, all 30 of them and ours included, keep them there. Let them work and work for the private company. Let them have their union contract enforced. Um, And if there are some openings, then let them come from the nonprofits. Um, That's the way we see is that's the best solution for us right now. And that's, to me, the most cost-saving road to go on.
0: Uh, Lindsay, I assume that you've been a resident of of Connecticut for some time. You know about the budget problems. Um, It's only going to worsen in the out years. I mean, are Connecticut's hands tied in terms of having to look at steps like privatization to provide services to people like your son, George, but to also, you know, they've got to figure out a way to get out of the red. What do you say to that? We have about
5: a minute. Um, It's endless war. That's the problem. That's the elephant in the room. Endless wars are killing us. They're sapping us of all of our resources. So that's the big picture. Is every state dealing with these problems? Absolutely. Is it a trend? Well, yes, it's a trend. Does it have to continue? No, absolutely not. Um, Another component of the endless war problem that's draining us um, is the fact in Connecticut that the, the wealthy, the 1%, are not paying their fair share of taxes, and I really get it when the legislators say, uh, we don't have the revenue, and we don't, but we have to get it.
0: That's Lindsay Matthews, a parent and legal guardian of George, an adult with developmental disabilities. Thank you, Lindsay, for just telling us a part of your story. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Also, Michelle Sorensen, who works at that group home where George has been cared for, Brook Street Group Home in Hamden, slated for privatization later this month. Uh, We'll continue the story um, as uh, the the weeks and months continue. But I appreciate your time, Michelle. Thank you very much. This, This is where we live.